Good morning. Good morning. This is like a family reunion. All these lovely folks that are here that have been out for so long. It's so good to see everybody here. John, it's so good to see you. Jerry Crane. Brother Lowry, it's so good to have you with us. <laughs> if you are a visitor, we especially invite you to join with us this morning in our service. I know John's glad to have Tim him here to show for him. We appreciate it, Tim, so very much. If you are a visitor, there is a card in the hymnal rack that we would appreciate. If you would uh, fill out for us just simply to send you a thank you note later on in the mail. Uh, also, you're very used to our giving policy. We have the box in the back on the wall that you give in, Cypress Street Church slash give. You can give in there. Simply send in the old U.S. mail if you want to. That will be fine. Our Wednesday evening service this week will be beginning at 6 o'clock. Uh, uh, Aaron Mitchell will be continuing on his turkey uh, adventure, and so I know everyone will enjoy that very much. And next Sunday, we'll have a worship service with Brother Ray Owens, who will be speaking to us. And also, it's our time to uh, help out at Grace Place. They need the oatmeal cookies, about 225. So I'd suggest getting the big boxes if you find them. That will help very much. Okay, let's see. I believe that's all insofar as our announcements are concerned. I would like to share a scripture with you this morning. I'm sure you have probably already looked at your bulletin and you see that Brother Carvin is speaking on Holy Almighty God. And so I'd like, it's just 11 verses in Revelations 4 that speaks of this Holy God, if you will join with me. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I had heard before that sounded like a mighty trumpet blast spoke to me and said, Come up here. I will show you what must happen in the future. And instantly I was in spirit there in heaven and saw, oh, the glory of it. Oh, a throne and someone sitting on it. Great bursts of light flashed forth from him as from a glittering diamond or from a shining ruby and a rainbow glowing like an emerald encircled his throne. Twenty-four smaller thrones surrounded his, with his twenty-four elders sitting on them. All were clothed in white with golden crowns upon their heads. Lightning and thunder issued from the throne, and there were voices in the thunder. Directly in front of his throne were seven lighted lamps, representing the sevenfold spirit of God. Spread out before it was a shiny crystal sea, and four living beings dotted front and back with eyes so they could see everything, stood at the throne's four sides. The first of these living beings was in the form of a lion, the second in the form of an ox, and the third the face of a man, and the fourth the form of an eagle, with his wings spread out as though in flight. Each of these living beings 
had six, there had six, pardon me, each of these living beings had six wings and the central sections of their wings were covered with eyes. Day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. And when the living beings gave glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him and worshiped him, the eternal living one, and they cast their crowns before the throne, singing, O Lord, you are worthy to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for you have created all things. They were created and called into being by your act of will. And this great almighty God, we want to start our, song, our service with beautiful songs like Holy, Holy, Holy. If you're able, please stand with us. And if at any point in time you feel tired, feel free to sit down. We'll begin with the child of God. In the cleansing fountain, 
beautiful little song, I See the Lord. Feel free to sit down and so we'll sing a song. Oh, we've already sang our songs, all of our songs this morning. No, holy, holy, okay. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. This is another song of the congregation book.
You feel free to, to uh, read those and remember them this week is in your prayer time. Also, we had an additional one. Ken and Pat Blaylock have this, uh, COVID. And Deanna and uh, Ron Bridges also requested that we pray for them. So if you add those two to our prayer list, I'd appreciate it. Before Brother Carving comes up, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we... We certainly thank you as holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We thank you, Lord, for being here with us, that we felt your spirit, and we pray, Lord, that you be with Carvin today. May he feel your presence so strongly that words come freely and that we know the words are from you. We ask these things in your precious, blessed name. Amen. It's so good to be with you this morning. Good to see each and every one of you. Some of you we haven't seen in several weeks. Good to have you back. God has touched your bodies and enabled you to be with us today. And for that, we uh, praise his holy name. Several Wednesday nights ago, I ended my lesson briefly talking about the presence of God. And I used three or four, maybe five examples which will be the introduction of this sermon this morning. I didn't have any idea I was going this direction, but God gave me this, this sermon this week. And all of us from time to time have experiences that will change our lives. Some are good, some maybe not so good, but they will radically change the way we live from that point forward. Well, I, I think about graduation from high school or college. That can be a major, major change in a person's life. I think about uh, getting married. Those who are married know how much your life changed. And I hope it's for the better. I won't get into that this morning. The birth of a child, maybe your first one, or a grandchild. 
radically changes our life. Or it may be the purchase of a big item your first time you bought a new car. I remember that. It didn't cost near as much as filling up a tank of gas today. <laughs> or it may be the purchase of a house. I remember the first house we ever bought. All of these things have a way of molding and shaping us and changing us into the people that God wants us to be. Then I thought about how are we changed spiritually? How do we experience the precious presence of God Almighty and give Him the opportunity to radically change who we are? I think about Abraham many years ago, almost 4,000 years ago. God called him and said, leave your home in Ur. Now I want you to go to a place you've never been before. That radically changed Abraham's life for the rest of his life. And indirectly have changed ours because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was born of, the, of his people. I think about uh, Moses. Lived 40 years in Pharaoh's house as the adopted grandson. Then killed an Egyptian and had to flee to the desert where he spent another 40 years keeping care of his father-in-law's sheep. And God spoke to him. And we can read the account in Exodus, just a few words. It says, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And God said, here I am. Do not worry, any, or do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That was Moses' radical change as he experienced the presence of Almighty God. We think of Paul, the great missionary, especially to the Gentiles. He experienced God's presence this way and he wrote, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from his body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. That would be into the very presence of God in heaven. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, he has no clue and it doesn't really matter. But he experienced God's presence in such a significant way that it affected the rest of his life. Or what about John the Apostle? the earliest or the youngest of all the apostles, the only one to die of a natural death. And as he was a prisoner on Isle, Isle, the Isle of Patmos, he had this great revelation. Pat read some of the scripture to you this morning. In fact, it happens to be in my sermon. I, I guess Pat was trying to preach this morning. I, I think she probably could if we gave her the opportunity, but I'm going to go ahead and finish this sermon. She can preach next Sunday. But let me read again to you what just a little bit of what John experienced. Revelation 4, beginning at verse 1. I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Probably meaning worshiping in the spirit. We have no indication he actually went there. But in the spirit he was given a vision of heaven. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. 
Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. That's probably symbolic of all God's people under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. The 12 tribes of Israel, God's people of the Old Testament, and then the 12 apostles, the beginning of the church in the New Testament. You add the two together, you come up with 24. It says they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads Night and day they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know, we experience those times with God. They may seem insignificant in comparison, especially to John's revelation or Moses's. But nevertheless, they are necessary if we are to become the people that God wants us to be. And I want to use our text this morning, Isaiah, the sixth chapter, if you'd like to turn there with me, as I read verses 1 through 9, of a special time in the prophet Isaiah's life when I believe he experienced the Lord more so than he had ever in the past. Isaiah the 6th chapter. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted in the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphims, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell these people. Isaiah was probably, at least in my opinion, the most significant, the most uh, important prophet of all the Israelites. In fact, 700 years before the time of Christ, he was able to predict many things about Christ's coming birth, where it would take place, things like that. But the occasion of this text today it appears that Isaiah has gone to the temple in Jerusalem, a place of worship. No doubt he's very, very discouraged. He's in despair. Perhaps he feels lonely. Perhaps he's even to a point of almost experiencing depression in his life. And he, he goes there to commune with God, to receive some insight on what he must do as a prophet, and also to be encouraged and to receive word of how he can help the Israelites who had basically, for all practical reasons, turned their back on God. And as he was there pouring out his heart to the Lord, 
something happened that I, I don't think probably ever happened before in his life, or at least we have no record of it. In verse 1 he says, I saw the Lord on a throne. Now I'm not sure if he saw him literally in the temple that God came down and was sitting in the temple. Probably not. But he was able in the spirit witness God on the throne in heaven. And as he did so, I believe he gained a new realization and a confirmation as just who is God. What is it that we need to learn about him? And as he was experiencing God's holy presence, he learned four things about God that is very important, not only to him as a prophet, but each one of us who decide to follow Jesus Christ in our lives. The first thing he learned, coming out of verse 1, the Lord God is the King of kings. He says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. The very fact that the throne was lifted up above the level of Isaiah. The very fact that God was sitting on the throne and not standing beside it tells us, it, it, it signifies that this is a person of dignity. This is a person of majesty because he is elevated. I read yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, I believe it was King Louis XIV of France, uh, probably the best king they ever had. Tremendously expanded the territory of France, even coming into Canada, all of, almost all of North America, except for that west of the Rockies. And they would say that his throne, as all earthly thrones, I'm sure, were elevated. So that when you came in, you were down below him, elevated in the seat. And they said anyone that wanted to approach him, regardless of who it was, they would enter the back of the room, and it would be a big room. And every five steps, they would have to curse him as a sign of obedience and homage and uh, servitude to you all the way down. His throne was elevated, but the people had to show him the proper respect. This is what Isaiah saw. Not an earthly king or an earthly throne, but the God Almighty sitting on his throne. This had to be an encouragement to Isaiah. Keep in mind that according to verse 1, it says King Uzziah had already died. Israel did not have a king during this time. The throne in Jerusalem of the king was vacant. The Assyrians were attacking the northern ten tribes of Israel, and by 722, they took all of them into captivity, incorporated them into their culture. By the time Jesus was born, you could not identify any of the ten northern tribes. In fact, their descendants were despised by the Jews. They were the Samaritans. And any time a Jew from Judah or Benjamin tribes would see a Samaritan, they would cross over on the other side of the street so they would not even have to look at them. The Assyrians were attacking the northern tribes. The two southern tribes that were left, Benjamin and Judah, sometimes just called Judah, they were in a state of confusion. 
We know from history, not only the Bible, but also secular history, that by the time of eight, uh, 587, they went into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. So with all this turmoil that was going on in the lives of these people who had been chosen by God, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He is sitting on his throne. He is high and exalted, meaning he's over all earthly kingdoms, over the Assyrians, over the Babylonians, and this God is still in control today. I know it doesn't seem like it at times. It appears our world is getting more wicked and wicked, but ultimately God is still in control. There's a second thing that Isaiah learned as he experienced God's presence. Verse 3, the Lord God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Isaiah saw this order of angels that are called seraphs. And they were flying around the throne. It says with two wings they covered their faces. This shows the sense of reverence to their God who created them. Even the angels in heaven could not bear look upon the face of God. He said with two wings they covered their feet. A sign of modesty of being in God's presence. And with two wings they were flying, meaning they were always ready to carry out any commands from God. And as they were flying, they sang a song to the glory and honor of God that said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is God the Father. Holy is the Son, Jesus Christ. Holy is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's the same song that we read earlier that John heard when he had his vision of heaven. He says, night and day they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. So as Isaiah is there communicating with God, he has this fresh sense of just who God is. He is holy. He is the great creator. He is the king of all kings. There's a third thing that he learned or else had reaffirmed and that was the uh, awesome power of God. He's all powerful. Verse 3, he just named it or said it this way, almighty. This is what he needed to learn that day. This was so important as Israel was being surrounded by enemies. They had the Assyrians to the north. They had the Babylonians to the east. They had the Egyptians to the south. And of course the Roman Empire later coming from the west. In his time of despair, possibly even loneliness, Isaiah was reminded of the fact just how powerful God is. There wasn't anyone who could stand up against him. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians or the Romans or the Egyptians. No one else. And Isaiah knew that with God all things were possible. There's a fourth thing I want to just quickly share with you before I get to the main part of the test, uh, text. And I'm not saying that we have a lot more to go. It's just uh, about halfway through so you can relax. But fourthly, he realized that God was present everywhere. Verse 3. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. Or verse 2, it says, His robe filled the temple. Will that be the earthly temple or the heavenly? We're not sure, but the point is, God is everywhere. I'm convinced as we are here this morning, studying God's word, allowing him to speak to us, he's here, he's here. I'm convinced he's down in Guatemala, Peru, or other places we work. He is there as they worship God. And that is one of the great advantages after Jesus went back to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit. That means everywhere we go, we cannot escape the presence of God. Now that's a comfort to us who are committed disciples of Jesus Christ, but I must admit it's probably discomforting to those who are still in sin. To know that God sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing that we can hide from Him. So Isaiah said, the whole earth is filled with His glory. I want to focus just a few minutes on four things that happened. After Isaiah had received this fresh awareness and realization and confirmation of who God is, he sees himself as God sees him. And when he did so, the first thing he did, coming out of verse 5, he confessed his sins. He confessed his sin. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Whenever we come into the presence of the Holy Almighty God, whether it be here in a worship service, whether it be in the solitude of your bedroom as you're studying or reading or praying, Whenever that happens, we will become aware if there's any sin in our lives. That awareness is almost like a, a bright spotlight that God's holiness looks down into the deepest corners of our hearts and it allows us to see ourselves as He sees us. And when we come to that awareness, we will do one of two things. Either we will ignore that sin, try to rationalize, everybody's doing it. That's the part of our culture today. Or we'll blame someone else like Adam did. You remember when God gave him meat, he said, wow, this woman is now flesh of my flesh. But then when he was caught in sin, he said, that woman. You know how his attitude changed because of the sin? That woman you gave me caused me to do it. And of course, she blamed it on, on Satan. But when we see our actions, and if there is any sin there, we will either ignore it, or we'll do what Isaiah did, and cry out and confess, Woe to me, I am run. You see, coming into the presence of a holy God is like God seeing us when we first get up in the morning before we've had our first cup of coffee. He sees us before we've showered and shaved, before we put on the makeup, before we put on the good clothes to go out into the world. He sees us just as we are. 
in our pajamas or naked before him. It's important that we allow him to do that as we look into his mirror of, of holiness. So Isaiah not only saw God for who he was, I believe equally important, he saw himself as he was. And he didn't like what he saw. But he said, woe to me, I'm run. He was confessing his sin to God. There's a second thing that took place. Isaiah received forgiveness and cleansing, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Notice what the angel said in verse 7. When he touched Isaiah's lips with a hot coal. First of all, he said, your sin is taken away. Meaning he had been forgiven of those sins that he had earlier confessed. There's a song that we used to sing quite often. It came to my mind as I was working on this sermon. And it's, uh, I think, entitled, They're All Taken Away. Did you hear what Jesus said to me? They're all taken away away. Your sins are pardoned and you are free. They're all taken away. Oh, this wondrous grace so free and full, they're all taken away, away. Though red like crimson, they're now as wool. They're all taken away. So I praise the Lord for sins forgiven. They're all taken away, away. While onward pressing my way to heaven, they're all taken away. Beautiful message in that song. And if you have enjoyed God's forgiveness, and if you are currently enjoying that forgiveness, you don't have to worry about those past sins. God doesn't hold them against you. He takes them away, and Scripture says, He puts them in the depths of the sea, separating them from us as the east is separated from the west. Isaiah was forgiven. There's something also equally important in verse 7. Item B. He said your sin, that's singular, sin, is atoned for. This is not the forgiveness, but this is also the cleansing or the purifying of that sinful nature that all have been born with. I thought of 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 as John the Apostle wrote. If we confess our sins, which is plural, which means those acts of disobedience against God, He, being God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And then, then notice what John wrote. And purify, which means cleanse or make holy us from all unrighteousness. This is what Isaiah experienced when he confessed his sins to God. He Receive forgiveness. No guilt was going to be held against him. No condemnation. And he also received that purification. Now, how was that possible? Well, notice that the angel got a coal from the altar there at the entrance of the temple. It was a live coal, meaning it was burning. That represents fire. Or a scripture Fire oftentimes represents the Holy Spirit 
and his ability to cleanse us. Just as fire, fire purifies ore and you can pull off all the impurities and what you have is 24 karat gold. So the angel touched him with a live coal taken from the altar, which was one of the most significant pieces of furniture in the temple. It was at the altar that people would bring their sacrifices for their sins. Give them to the priest and they would kill and burn that, that animal sacrifice on the altar. The altar was very important to them. It should also be important to us. Not that we bring a, an animal sacrifice to these altars and slaughter it. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice. It's as David said, you remember when he was praying for forgiveness because he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered or killed? He said in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. He's talking about here about animal sacrifice. He said, there's no need of me to do that. That's not sufficient. But then notice what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Signifying that there cannot be any forgiveness of sins. or There cannot be a purifying of our sinful nature and brought into a right relationship with God without the sacrifice of Jesus on the altar, or we would say the cross. And without him also sending his Holy Spirit when he got back to heaven, who comes to purify us, as John the Baptist said of Jesus, he says, he will, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And since God is holy, in and of himself, he's also called us to be holy and any time we're able to experience his presence in a, what I'd call a significant way, without any doubt knowing he is with us, it prepares us to either be forgiven, to be further sanctified, or to be surrendered more to God. And that's what we see in this third thing that Isaiah experienced. Isaiah made a commitment to God's call of service in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. As important as forgiveness and sanctification is, that cleansing, that brings us into a right relationship with God and that is the ultimate reason of it. But there's another reason that sometimes we forget. It makes us open to work in God's kingdom. As we hear God speak to our hearts, as we know that it is Him, him who is speaking, and we dedicate our lives completely to Him, He says, I want you to do this for me. I want you to do such and such for me. I had a man in one of the churches I pastored. Good man. I believe he was forgiven of his sins. But quite often he'd come to the altar and say, I, I know there's something I need to be doing for God. I just don't know what it is. And I had to tell him on numerous occasions, surrender everything to God and you will find out. But to my knowledge, he never did. It was sad. 
He knew there was something else in store for him, but he had not made that final commitment, that dedication to be used by God. And that's what the word sanctification means, to be made holy, set aside to be used by, by God. In Isaiah, when he was sanctified, when he was made holy there in the temple, he made a commitment to do whatever God called him to do. And then the last thing that I want to share with you about this experience of Isaiah is that God commissioned Isaiah in verse 9. He says, go and tell this people. At that time, he didn't tell him a whole lot to what, what to say. But through the years, he did. God was saying, you are now my apostle, my messenger. You share with them what I say. And that is one of the offices of, uh, of the apostle or the prophet. Not only can you foretell the future, which Isaiah could, but more importantly, he foretold what God told him to tell. He preached out to the people what God wanted him to preach. Isaiah had this life-changing experience. And if you read through the Bible, you'll find out that the other great Bible heroes, we may call them, had similar situations. He saw God for who he was. He saw himself as God saw him. He confessed his sins. God forgave him. God cleansed him from his sins. And then the Lord said, Whom shall I send? Who will represent me? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. As I considered this vision that Isaiah had here in these few verses, it can be summarized basically in three words. Upward, inward, and outward. Isaiah had an inward vision. He saw God. It was an upward vision. He was able to look up into heaven. He saw himself as he really was. That was that inward vision. And then he had that outward vision when he made himself available to God. And God says, go there. You tell these people that. I thought quite often the first part of the sermon were really fairly easy to put together. But then I wanted to give you just a few practical things. In fact, they're not even in your outline. I finished this up yesterday morning. How can we experience the presence of an almighty God and in some ways, maybe not to the degree of some we've talked about, but in some ways, know God is with us. We have no evidence that Abraham and Moses was doing anything special. We don't even know if they were praying to God. Abraham was taking care of his family as a shepherd when God said, move. It's time for you to move. Uh, Moses, as I said, was hiding from Pharaoh, keeping care of his father-in-law's sheep when God appeared to him. Paul, we really don't know. He was planting churches among the Gentiles and was, had made at least three missionary journeys in his life throughout the Roman Empire. The Apostle John, he was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, which was noted for two things, 
the rock, rock quarries in which he probably had to work as a slave, and also all the snakes. So I can imagine that was not a good feeling to be there when he was caught up, he says, in the spirit. But their situations were different, but they all in some way experienced God's almighty presence that changed their lives forever. But I did see a common denomination. And I did put it in your outline or in your PowerPoint this morning. It's talked about throughout Scripture, but I like the way Moses penned it in Deuteronomy 4.29. He says, if you seek the Lord, you will find him. And then he says, if, if you seek him with all your heart, with all your soul. And I believe this has to be that consuming passion to know God better. To be drawn closer to Jesus Christ. To give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to encourage our hearts, to empower us for Christian living, to, to give us the guidance we need in life. Yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning I read this from a preacher. I don't even recall his name. I should have wrote down the name, but let me just read to you this quote. God's presence can be experienced in a number of different ways. God's presence, presence can feel like liquid love. I like that. Liquid love. The most intimate time I ever had with God. And I won't go into detail, but I was in my room by myself studying. My eyes were closed, and I felt someone come into my bedroom. I looked towards the door, and there was nobody there. But it was as, it, as if someone just kind of showered down upon me. I was enveloped as if God was embracing me, pulling in, me to his heart so I could hear his heartbeat. So I could feel his breath up on my face. Liquid love, maybe the way I would have described it. Then this author went on to say, it can feel like lightness or joy in your heart. It can feel like a deep sense of knowing something. And I would add to that, knowing someone. It can also feel like strength to face difficulties. End of quote. So let me, in closing, leave you with three practical ways that I know I know from my study of Scripture, I know from personal experience, that will enable you to experience the presence of Almighty God. The first is this, through Scripture. Through Scripture. The psalmist wrote, Blessed are those who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. Or the writer of Hebrews said, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts. God's holiness. God expressing himself through his word looks at our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I would tell you that's the number, number one way I experience God's presence. The number one. Over everything else, I don't consider myself uh, a great prayer warrior. I cannot get on my knees and pray for 30 minutes or an hour. And maybe I'm not that disciplined. But when I study God's Word, 
he speaks. And then I am brought into an attitude of prayer. That's the third thing. And I'll share the second last. Or the second thing is prayer. Ephesians 4.18, pray in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean pray in some language you don't understand. There's not, there's not a prayer language. It means pray as if God is praying for you or according to His will. E.M. Bounds wrote this, and I quote, Nothing is well done without prayer for the simple reason that it leaves God out of the account. End of quote. So we can experience God's presence through His Word, through prayer. And then the third thing I would like to suggest, through fellowship with other believers. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather in my name, Jesus said, there I am. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads this morning and that you be in an attitude of prayer. I want to ask you a simple question. You need not voice your answer. But be honest before God. When was the last time? When was the last time you experienced the presence of a holy, almighty God beyond any doubt? You felt his presence as if someone else was in that room with you, which indeed it was, not human, but spiritual. He may have given you instructions. He may have brought conviction. He may have brought encouragement, possibly healing, to your body, your mind, whatever. When was the last time? I have to ask myself that question quite often. It's so good to have a loving Father who loves us enough that He wants to communicate with us. Wants to be with us. Wants to help us. Sometimes we get so independent. So distracted from all the cares of this world. We simply say, not today, some other time. I'm too busy today, don't bother me. And if you study scripture, you'll find out that on a few occasions he left and didn't come back for a period of 70 years. I hope you have felt God's presence here today. I hope that if He's speaking to your heart, you will be obedient. If you'd like to pray by yourself and seek God's presence, you can come to these front pews. I won't bother you. But if you'd like for me to pray with you, you can come to these two altars. As we stand together and sing a few verses of an invitation, we invite you to come. Won't you stand, please? We'll sing, Seek ye first the kingdom of God.
We do serve a mighty God. I want you to think about him all this week, what we have learned today, and seek and find. He says, just knock and the door will be opened. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for your love, <laughs> unconditional love. Thank you, Father, for the words that have, you have given Carbon this morning, that our hearts might be encouraged and your name might be glorified in all we say and do this week. We ask this in your precious, holy, holy name. Amen. Amen.